Welcome to The Obsession Digression, a podcast that explores all of the cultural things that obsess us. I'm Sam Benarchik. And I'm Katie Walker. Sam? Yes. This is the weirdest shift <laughs> I ever... I don't think I could have imagined this. I think this is purely the brainchild of our collaboration, where we move from season one, which is David Lynch, right, to season two. And do you want to tell everyone what season two is about? <laughs> It's about Judy Bloom. Judy Bloom. So a little bit of a background on how we went from one to the other <laughs> is we wanted to find someone who is sort of the complete opposite so that we weren't putting ourselves in any sort of box from season to season. Right? We didn't want to typecast like Kyle MacLachlan. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to K-Mac ourselves. Yeah. So we mm-hmm. avoided the K-Macking. Because um, before you know it, you're just uh, a guest star for decades until you become Mr. <laughs> Mayor on like a small indie show. Which he's, you know, still like the guest star essentially. Yeah, he's not Portlandia. even, he's recurring, but um, yeah. Well, he plays, I think I mentioned this, but he plays like the impotent husband yeah, in a lot of shows. So. On a lot of shows? Well, he plays it in Sex and the City. He's Charlotte's impotent husband. <laughs> oh, that's really sad. Um, His agent calls, she's like, Kyle, have I got the part for you? And he's like, another in- uh, impotent husband? Well, he another is. Another impotent husband. <laughs> another impotent husband <laughs> Desperate Housewives. Oh no! Uh, so yeah, poor guy. But what I really hope is that <laughs> there is some weirdo out there in the world who is both a hardcore David Lynch and Judy Bloom fan. Mm. Who's just like, if you're that person, let <laughs> like, us know. We would love to talk to you. Right now. Yeah, because <laughs> we should both say that neither of us. Not that we're we're not anti or opposed to Judy Bloom, but we know, is that right? No, no experience. experience. Yeah. And it's weird because I was in the car with several women of different ages uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, we were talking about, actually we were talking about the, this podcast because I was, I was bragging about it, uh, and I told them that our next season was Judy Bloom, and they all responded with excitement and mm-hmm. had memories of reading Judy Bloom, of how they felt like really um, kind of rebellious reading Bloom because, of course, she's been banned Mm -hmm. so many times, and we can talk about that, too, but, um, and I was just like, uh, I got nothing, like, there's this weird gap as a young woman where I I just, like, didn't read Bloom. I was reading, like, Flowers for Algernon. I know, (laughs) as we know. (laughs) I've already talked about that weird experience. Learning a lot. That has affected me quite a bit. So Um, I thought of, like, a single Judy Bloom memory I have, and that's that when we were kids, my grandma had a copy. Like, she had this sort of kids' bookshelf for when the grandkids came over, mm -hmm. and there was a copy of Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. Oh. And I remember my mom telling my sisters they weren't allowed to read it. (gasps) Really? Yeah. Okay, so your parents and so in my up. mind, I I just thought there's something controversial about Judy Bloom. I don't know what it is. Right? Yeah, I had heard. Are you there, God? Uh, it's me, Margaret. Yeah, that's the title. <laughs> what did I say earlier? Said, I was like, Dear God, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh God. Um, so I had heard of it, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I, I knew that the title. Yeah, that's it for me. So you had like a Judy Bloom is a bad author type of experience or I mean, she's fan. It was more just like throw it on the pile of like um, authors and artists. <laughs> and like Disney my, movies yeah. that you can't watch. Yeah, that have been banned in our household. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, this was certainly a shift though. This, I kept just, I don't know if it was because of David Lynch or we can talk about this more when we talk about Iggy's house, but I kept expecting Calamity where Calamity then did not happen oh you mean like and as i read i kept expecting things to go darker and maybe it is because we've been so steeped in david yeah well (laughs) i felt the need after reading iggy's house because i mean it is for and we should say that this is what we're talking about for the first episode is iggy's house um but it is for young children so like despite treating very heavy issues like racism and white flight it is very light-hearted in tone Mm -hmm. and uh humorous and so I felt the need coming from Lynch, such a dark place, <laughs> gloriously dark, right? To then reading Bloom, that I needed to counteract my Bloom with some more darkness. So I've watched a lot of dark movies lately and have like tried to balance out. I'm reaching this weird place. So oh, I, last I was night hoping I watched... you were gonna say you were gonna you're watching like Do the Right Thing or a bunch of like Spike Lee movies <laughs> to balance it up. No. <laughs> <laughs> what Some did real. you watch? Um, I watched The Omen last night, and I 
had never seen it before. Okay, can I, I say watched... one thing very quickly? Because sure. this is blowing my mind. I'd never have like done the math on this. We watched that movie multiple times as kids with my parents. Oh my <laughs> so... god. <laughs> this is saying this so makes no many sense. weird things yeah. about your upbringing. Someone gets decapitated by plexiglass, right? Yes. Yeah, the photographer yeah. does. So I, I'd never seen it before. Okay. But, um, you know, trying to, like, find a way to balance out the potential sweetness of Bloom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you, you need to cut that sugar with I, some, some, some bitter. Some hardcore demonism. <laughs> um, it's all for you, Damien. All for you, Nanny loves you. <laughs> but, so I, you know, obviously Googled, like, scary movies on Netflix right now. Mm-hmm. And it was grouping Omen with Rosemary's Baby. And I was like, well, I love Rosemary's Baby. One of my favorite movies. So I'll, you know watch the omen it's not as good it's not nearly as good but you know it's got gregory peck in it whom i didn't recognize as gregory peck for like the first 30 minutes of the film (laughs) and i was like oh wait it's atticus um and uh yeah you know just like an evil child who actually isn't nearly as evil as our contemporary films make evil children out to be so like yeah like at least he's fairly well behaved yeah he's just like no he's the worst though like someone just dragged the kid into a church like be done with it oh yeah just like yeah he doesn't want to go like okay if i were the antichrist born to my parents (laughs) and i started wailing outside of a church the answer would not be like oh i guess we should go home then (laughs) (laughs) but he like attacks his mom he's like freaking out um no i would totally make that kid go into the church also if i were the antichrist I would not give if myself away. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so blatantly, where he's like, I will have this weird ass nun nanny mm-hmm. and a Rottweiler evil dog. I'm not saying all Rottweilers are evil, but this one is Yeah, we're not evil. trying to propagate some. No, no, I love some, Rottweilers. Yeah. Um, the one did bite me one time. Oh, no. Um, but it was my fault. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you provoked it. <laughs> well, they, there was a sign that that said, like, beware of dog. And it was, like, my neighbor's yard. And um, they, you know, like, I grew up in a in an area where, like, you could just run around into people's yards and, like, play yeah. around. And so, like, we knew we weren't supposed to run through there. But we were playing hide and seek. And so I ran into the yard. And the dog, like, just nipped me. So, okay. you know. Right. it was It wasn't traumatic. It was not the hellhound. Of the Antichrist who bit me, fortunately, so I was okay. Did you get a settlement? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Clearly. I mean, I'm sitting here in grandeur as we speak, so... Did you know anyone, by the way, who had, like, a settlement fund from, like, some childhood accident? Because... No, the only... I grew up with many people who had them. Really? Yeah. The only kid I knew... This is kind of sad, but his parents were really rich and died... And so he was an orphan, so he had a guardian, but his guardian did not care about him at all. And so he just, like, got to spend millions of dollars Whoa. as, like, a 14-year-old. How do you become a guardian? I don't know. It was this weird thing. It was, like, this weird it's middle-aged It's now. Guy. I should, like, add that to my list of jobs <laughs> I'm looking for. Potential guardian. <laughs> I, this is such a digression, but it's the obsession digression. Mm-hmm. Um... So there's this movie with the Olsen twins, speaking of, like, childhood... The mechanics from the straight story? Oh, no! (laughs) (laughs) No, the actual Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen. Um, So, but they were in a movie called It Takes Two, and one of them was uh, a foster child, and the parents just got a bunch of foster children to work in their dump. So they had like thirty foster children. <laughs> That's so messed up. I know it's really fucked up. But like, part of like ten year old me was like creative. <laughs> like I'm Go not on. advocating for child labor at all. I think in this episode of Judy Bloom, I've already claimed that I was antichrist, and I've. And now you're going to adopt yeah. children so that you can exploit them. <laughs> I'm just saying, as a 10-year-old, I didn't understand the ethics of the problem, and I thought, like, interesting. <laughs> I know, it must be tough to be, a, like, a, a, an honest, good foster parent, because so oh, yeah. many portrayals of, like, the foster care system are just like, yeah. those people are monsters, even if they don't appear to be. Right. They are. Well, have you seen so. um, Hunt for the Wilder People? Oh, no, I saw those on Amazon. It's now. so good. That presents foster care as, like, this 
potentially beautiful relationship. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. But wait, we should go back. So you grew up with a lot of people who just like had settlements from yeah, so I knew things. two different people who didn't have to worry about paying for college because they had funds from when they were bit by dogs. Whoa. And then someone else had gotten a bad injury because of a faulty, um, they're not called carousels. What are they? Where they're just, it's circular and spins, but it's just like metal Lazy prongs Susan? you hold on to. Do you know what I mean though? No. Instead of horses, like you stand and there's just like metal poles that come oh, from the center out. Like a park yeah, yeah, just okay. one of those spinning things. Uh, it was like faultily constructed, <gasps> and they sort of got like pulled under. Oh god! <laughs> like a tide or something, but I don't know how it happened. But. Oh my god! <laughs> so they... she had a a college fund essentially just from Dang. childhood, and then I knew someone else who in junior high was sort of it was a, I knew this person through a friend where they were at the supermarket with their parents. And you know how in the produce they have the misters? Yeah. Um, I guess they were drawn to the mister and just wanted to reach up to touch it. And one of the shelves wasn't properly installed. And when they put their hand on the shelf, it collapsed and, like, sliced their head. Oh, like in a Twister when that thing like, oh, comes yeah, by and right. like, kind of slices yeah. it in the guy's head. And he's like, <laughs> you know the original script was like, and his head is chopped off, and they're like, nope, PG-13, guys. Helen Hunt just comes over, and she does the dumbest thing where she just, like, puts her hand on his wound, and I'm like, no, like, you're just infecting his mm -hmm. wound. Sorry. This no, is... for sure. <laughs> yeah, this last person, though, produce person, they came into their money at 16, Dang. or was it 18, and instead of going to college, they blew through it in four months. That sounds glorious. I mean, I'm I mean, mm, what would you have done with money at well, 18 or 16? A, a segue. <laughs> <laughs> when were segues, when did they become like commercialized? I know in college they were like a big deal because the Soldier Boy video oh, yeah. where he rides the Segway came out. Yeah. So I remember being really into Segways. Still I am. remember being into Soldier Boy for uh, <laughs> yeah. about 10 minutes. Yeah. So. so, no, that's, I, I don't need to say more. I would just buy a Segway. I'd probably mm, buy several. I think I would just waste it on just like, <sighs> just meals at like TGI Fridays <laughs> and bad the fancy clothing places, yeah. choices and just lots and lots of movies and video games. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But wouldn't it be so wonderful those four months of your life yeah. where you're just buying shit like crazy so i when i was in college uh this other car swiped my car actually ran me off the road mm. it was crazy mm. and i got a settlement of three thousand dollars so you're in the settlement group. well what is this i didn't sue it was culture. insurance so insurance was like well you need to take it to a dealership have them get an estimate and okay. generate an estimate <laughs> And they gave me an estimate of $1,600, and I sent that on to insurance, and then they sent me a check for uh, $3,000. Hell yeah. Okay. I was like, I don't understand this, because I'm 18, but <laughs> I'm going to go with it. And I thought, I'm never going to have to work again. <laughs> <laughs> I think in like seven months, I had no... I went to check my ATM, and I had $162, and was like, oh no. Oh. <laughs> I'm impressed that that money lasted that long, though. I'm sure it wasn't even that long. <laughs> It was, and I was still, I remember I was so cocky too, so I had, I was working at like a coffee house at the time, mm -hmm. and I went in and I was like, guys, I'm cutting my hours, <laughs> not coming in at five anymore, I'll, you know, like rolling at 7.30 and I'm leaving by one, and I only want to work two days a week. <laughs> and I was like, things are really going my way, and I just, it just didn't even occur to me that if you're only making $30 a week, <laughs> working like seven hours or something. Oh, it's going to balance out. Right. This, yeah. this can't sustain itself. <laughs> well, that's how I thought, you know, grad school was going to be. I was like, yeah, our stipend is crazy. <laughs> you know? Oh, I did not think that. I was like, oh, wait, wait. I have to live in Chapel Hill, which I is had... expensive. What? This is not expensive. This is totally expensive. Coming Dude, from New Jersey, this is nothing. Coming from Aubrey, Texas, this is like the Ritz, yo. <laughs> <laughs> I had the opposite experience where I had consistently multiple, like, almost panic attacks the first couple months because I went from making uh, three to four times as much oh, as I was stipend to yeah. making, you know, next to nothing that I would make now. And I just thought I was watching my savings deplete. Mm -hmm. And just being like, oh my god, I don't, I can't do this. Yeah. What have I done? This is the most money 
this is sad because like it clearly shows that I've been like a lifelong student pretty much mm-hmm. because this is the most I've made ever. So whenever I get like a real job, <laughs> you're going to lose your mind. It's going to be Sam <laughs> with the $3,000. Yep. <laughs> well, I know I'm, I'm looking forward to, to getting Jersey on mm-hmm. my Segway. I'm going to roll Straight up. Story style. Yes. I'm going to be like, Sam, yo, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> I'm cold. (laughs) I've eaten nothing but wieners for (laughs) the last five weeks. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm excited to get a real paycheck. I hope that's sooner rather than later. You're about to be a real human. Yeah, so this is my last week in Chapel Hill. I think we're going to record one more episode together, and then it's going to be long distance. Yeah, which I'm happy about. you visit me, I visit what? Well, (laughs) just kidding. Well, just because... I don't like that humor, Katie. Then I can, you know, I can record without necessarily putting pants on and no you pants know is the best it's it's wonderful and you know like i can just i don't know like i can eat my doritos while recording and you won't ever know mm-hmm. except for the weird crunchy sound so that's my that's my goal is for you to leave <laughs> also kidding. speaking of leaving did i tell you about trying to exit our department no so i was I met with our director of graduate studies mm-hmm. to say, I'm leaving the program, no hard feelings, great time, very informative, or very formative, <laughs> etc. Very I, informative. I learned a few I, things. I learned some shit. Yeah, I grew, <laughs> and I'm ready to move on now. And um, then I said, "How? what do I fill out? Like, what is the proper way to declare to the department that I'm leaving? Yeah. And the DGS said, Phil. what? He's like, I kind of feel like if you just stop coming, they'll forget about you. <gasps> Okay, yeah. that's harsh. That's harsh. <laughs> it's like, okay, so as a as a first stab at something, sure. But uh, given how bureaucratic our state school is sure. and that we get routinely fined for not handing things in, right. I'd like to uh, do this the kosher way. <laughs> Never heard back. So <laughs> Multiple emails. So then I went to one of our department administrators, right? I was like, straight to the source. This is the person who's going to process my exit. And I said to this person who remains nameless, I'm leaving. How do I go about doing this the right way? And she goes, honestly, I don't really know. I think uh, <laughs> if you just stop showing up, she's like, don't ex- don't sign a contract. I was like, really? This but is like, doesn't there need to be a record? Or surely someone needs to know for sure that I'm leaving. Are right? they are they hoping that like in ten years you'll come back and be like, hey guys, <laughs> I was here all along. <laughs> Just hiding in the shadows, <laughs> just skulking That's around so each weird. corner. Yeah, I don't know. And yet the department yells at me all the time. They don't yell, but well, they, they get on to me because I do of, not turn in forms. Yeah, and plenty of people who've forgotten to turn in a form have been threatened with, like, fines and expulsion. And yeah. I don't know. They just, maybe it's because you're so wonderful. They don't want you to leave. Or so forgettable. No. It's like I as mean, soon as I left the office, he was like, was someone just here? I don't <laughs> I have this just an imprecise impression of um I don't know. I was trying to think of something yeah, to yeah. describe you, but like all of them were insulting. Not sorry. That came out wrong. You know what I mean. Anyway. Do I <laughs> yeah, you do. I I will miss you, Sam. It's I'll miss you. Sad. So, well, when you're up in New York, you'll come see me. Oh, definitely. I'll probably come back down sometimes. Oh, sure. And I mean, for our, for all of our live shows down here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When we when we start recording um, <laughs> video of our shows. Mm-hmm. Also, um, really quick before we get too far away from it, if mm-hmm. you want to see Gregory Peck in another unrecognizable role, mm-hmm. also this is a Rosemary's Baby connection because it's the boys from Brazil, which is also written by Ira Levin. Oh. Okay. The mo- the book is awesome. The movie is not great, but he plays um, an old Joseph Mengel, the Nazi, oh, as he no. attempts to uh, clone Hitler <laughs> to carry on his mission. Oh no! Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I did just see Hellboy, which is kind of like the oh, Nazis and oh yeah yeah right. Stuff. So oh and. I'm going to watch some more Indiana Jones this week. Oh, really? That's really exciting. There's plenty of Nazis. No yeah. shortage of Nazis. Oh, there's in a lot Jones. of Nazis in that. Yeah. Um, that's exciting. I think how Steven Spielberg was just like, man, I've, I've really played this Nazi card too many times. <laughs> and so for the fourth one, he was like, Russians? <laughs> Who like, else sure. is bad? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All um, right. So should we dive into it? We should get, we should get serious. So... 
this is we're gonna, this is our first episode of Judy Bloom, so we want to give a little bit of background on who she is, what her childhood or early writing career was like, and then we're gonna jump into uh, her first major novel, it's a children's novel called Iggy's House. Yeah. Uh, sorry. <laughs> we might have to cut McPug's background noise of trying to climb up those stairs. All right. So this is the first episode of Judy Bloom. We're gonna get a little bit into her background. So. Bloom is something of a paradox. She's at once a wildly best-selling and beloved author, so she sold over 82 million books across 32 languages. Damn! Yet, uh, according to the American Library Association, she's also one of the most frequently challenged authors in contemporary American literature. So she's ranking up there with, like, Mark Twain and, like... Agatha Christie. Yeah. Yeah, it's, like, Weird. real big players. Yeah, I would never have grouped her in that, that category, but she's also big on um, protesting against censorship, right? So she... Yeah, yeah. she's got a vested stake in that. Seriously. So. so, Katie, why don't you get us started by telling us a little bit about her childhood, and then I'll talk about her early writing career. Sure. So... I'm going to try to draw some lame-ass connections between Bloom and Lynch just to, just to have a podcast narrative. Yeah, just to, to ease us into it. Um, so Bloom, like Lynch, had an incredibly normal upbringing. So she uh, grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is, I guess, a mid-sized town. I don't know nothing yeah, like about it. city. Um, and it's in a very suburban area in that city. So, um, very white neighborhood. Uh, and that's partly where kind of Iggy's house comes from as we'll yeah. talk about this, um, you know, phenomena of white flight and of just like, um, anxiety regarding African-Americans and violence, etc. So she grew up basically really normal kind of narrative uh the one thing that's kind of interesting that you told me earlier sam is that she used to have to do book reports and the books that she was assigned as a child were so boring or she just wasn't into them so she instead would get up in front of the class and make up her own story she'd make up her own plots yeah (laughs) so this is taken from uh the believer published an interview between her and lena dunham a few years ago Mm -hmm. um and she said that she had no interest in ever reading the bobsy twins or any stories about girls befriending (laughs) horses which there's so many fucking so she would just read whatever she wanted and then when she had to present on her book about a girl and her horse she would just stand up at the front of the class and make up a story Which is awesome, right? Yeah. So she, we're going to talk about her education a bit, but she has been married three times. So her first husband, the one she had her two children with, and one of her children, Randy, is a dentist, I think. And the other one, Lawrence, is a filmmaker. And she has made a film with her son, Lawrence. Oh, nice. Do you know what the movie's called? Tiger Eyes. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, so I've not seen this, but I kind of want to this week just to check out. I'm really curious about, also, we should talk about this later, too, is um, her novels written for adults, too, Mm -hmm. and how those maybe stack up or um, compare to her more famous uh, YA novels. Yeah, that's something we can report on in one of the future episodes. Yeah. Sort of background. Yeah, that should be some homework. So, anyways, she marries this guy, divorces this guy, marries another guy, goes to New Mexico with him. Um, they divorce very soon after. And her current husband is named George Cooper. He's also uh, an author and an ex-physicist, I think. No, an ex-lawyer, sorry, an ex-lawyer. I don't know where physicists came from. <laughs> I think wasn't her second husband a physicist? Okay, yes. I believe so, so. Yeah. She's now married still to George Cooper. They live on the East Coast. Um, and they have one grandchild and they just continue to write and hang out. They both do, yeah. Yeah. Just live a sweet life. It sounds fun. So let's go back to the origin of her writing. Talk about her early career. So, Bloom receives her first formal writing training at New York University, from which she graduated in 1960 with a BA in education. Mm -hmm. Now, in 1960, she's newly married to lawyer John M. Bloom. In 1961, she has her first child, a daughter, Randy Lee, who you've just mentioned, Mm -hmm. and then her first son, Lawrence Andrew, in 1963. So, that's a lot at once. Yeah. And after a couple years, though, Bloom's kids start nursery school, and she's able to turn her attention back to publishing. So here in the mid-60s, she's 
published two short stories, but still she struggles to get anything else accepted. She says that she received as many as six rejection slips a week for two and a half years. I know that feeling. I know. <laughs> Finally, Riley and Lee, it's a publishing house, they accept her picture book called The One in the Middle is the Green Kangaroo in 1969. And I vaguely remember this. Like, as soon as I looked it up and saw the pictures, I was oh. like, oh, I've, I've seen this. Green Kangaroo follows second grader uh, Freddie Dissel. He's a middle child who feels ignored because his older brother and younger sister seem to get all the attention. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Herbie in Iggy's house, too, right? Kind of like who? Herbie. Oh, I heard Herpes. Oh. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, Herpes in this <laughs> child's novel. We do not pay enough attention to Herpes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Bloom writes that Freddie feels like, quote, the, the peanut butter part of the sandwich. It's <laughs> just so sad. But then he lands a role in the school play as the eponymous green kangaroo, and he, like, seizes the chance to be center stage and garner attention for himself. I see. Much like you and your piano concert. Mm-hmm. It's sort costume. of like a weird cautionary tale, though, right? It's just like, I'm not satisfied in my familiar relationship, so I'm going to throw myself into my career. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, I'll take to the stage. <laughs> then the in... stage Yeah. <laughs> It's like an origin story for uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Wait, what? Oh, that's a dark movie. You should see that. I have not seen this. It's about two sisters who are both actresses, but the one was a really famous like child actress and was never able to grow into an adult actress, and so she's just stunted and insane. Oh. And just this sort of like... And does she want to murder her, sis- her normal she sister? she attempts to. Oh. She holds her hostage in the house and tries to take over. And... Ooh, spooky. Okay, yeah. I'll check it out. Yeah. All right. Then, in 1970, Bradbury Press picks up a novel that Bloom had written all the way back in 1960 for an NYU creative writing class. That novel is Iggy's House. Mm. And along with Our E There Goddess, Me, Margaret, also published in 1970, um, Bloom's catapulted into bestsellerdom. Yeah. And to controversy with... mm -hmm. Well, the controversy, though, doesn't really kick off until the 80s. So that's not going to start until we reach the end because we're really just looking at the 70s novels but yeah when you think about the reagan era Mm -hmm. the conservative turn and the you know the revision widespread revision of like classroom textbooks and we start thinking about banning school books that's when she really becomes the center of a lot of these controversies so right now though in the 70s she can be as yeah it's just daisies free flowing as possible okay so let's turn to i mean it's all daisies as we get into a novel about like (laughs) (laughs) racial tension Yeah. yeah Um, so should we talk about Iggy's house now? Let's do it. Okay. I'm just going to give you... Yeah, read the back. The... Oh. <laughs> I was just turning over the book. Oh. I was like, to, do like, it. do something. But I will read the back now. Um, that actually will probably be a better summary than mm-hmm. what I can offer. Okay. Iggy is gone. She's moved to Tokyo. And now Winnie, her best friend, is alone on Grove Street, cracking her gum and wondering how she's going to make it through the rest of the summer. Then the Garbers move into Iggy's house, and Winnie is thrilled. They have three kids, but the Garbers are black, and Grove Street is white and always has been. Winnie, a welcoming committee of one, sets out to make a good impression, showing the Garbers what a good neighbor she is. That's how the trouble starts. The Garbers don't want a, quote, good neighbor. They want a friend. Mm. That's the cover, the blurb, to Iggy's house. So we're already into we already get a sense of what some of the problems are going to be and namely those problems are adults asshole adults basically responding race uh uh negatively sorry um racistly wait yes. is that a word oh no. i don't think so okay let's cut that <laughs> <laughs> so it's, yeah it's a it's a coming of age novel right mm-hmm. and so this is about a coming into awareness it's uh, one s- small step along the larger process of growing up and yeah. this step involves Winnie our protagonist realizing that adults are complicated and and adults and our parents even are not necessarily as good and perfect as we expect them right. to be yeah and it's kind of heartbreaking one of the I mean there are a lot of heartbreaking moments in this novel but when she is so disappointed at her parents basic non-reaction essentially to the potential petition right to right kick the garbers out yeah so the first sort of rumblings we get that her parents 
are not who she expects them to be is when she goes over to Iggy's house and watches this new black family move in. She comes mm-hmm. back to tell her mom, the family that's moved in is black. And the mom says, just don't tell your dad. Wait till, at least wait till after dinner. Right. And then she mm-hmm. tells him anyway, and then she overhears them, like, complaining about this. Yeah. Um, and another thing that reminded me of, too, was so... Um, you know, Winnie has discovered that this black family has moved in and she wants to be, you know, very just um, exuberant and greeting them Mm -hmm. and to have a proper welcome, right? Um, And before her mother knows that the family is black, she says, oh, well, when the new neighbors come, I'll bake them brownies. And so day of, once once her mother knows that the Garbers are black, uh, when he's like, Mom, where are the brownies? And her mom's like, Oh, I um, I forgot. I didn't have time. Yeah, or something. And it's such bullshit. And it's already these early kind of um, ruptures, essentially, that you get a sense of like, this is going to be a messy, messy path for, of course, the Garbers, but uh, also Winnie, who has to navigate these yeah. beliefs. Also, let's make a note to come back to this novel's <clears throat> obsession with desserts. Oh, I know. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> So but Winnie desserts. Was it weird to you too? So when Winnie sees that the new family is black, she goes, Oh, this is what Iggy was talking about in her letter when Iggy said she's in for a surprise. <laughs> I was like, what does that mean? Also that Iggy, Iggy thought this was gonna be like a hilarious surprise yeah. on that. Well, Iggy is figured as this weird, wise, non present figure, like this like godlike messenger Oh, shit. Godlike messenger. No, not messenger. <laughs> divine being. Divine. Well, what I'm trying to say is, like, A, Iggy has, like, set the scene, like you're saying, for this surprise, I guess. Mm-hmm. By, like, well, what you realize, though, because it comes out later, is that Iggy's parents probably told her she was not allowed to tell anyone because they didn't want to get any pushback from the community before sure. they left. Yeah. They wanted to sell the house and get out, and it just happened the family they wanted to buy it was black, and that was convenient for them. Mm-hmm. So they knew that this was going to cause a stir. Yeah, yeah. She's Always just at the margins structuring of this. Winnie's yeah. reactions in certain ways, right? So what I'm thinking of are the letters that um, Winnie keeps writing and revising to Iggy throughout, right? And the fact that she graces the title of this novel as well. Um, she's just this... Ever present, but not actually present figure. Well, yeah, we know too that it's even Iggy's family as a whole is held up as being idealized, right? Yeah. And what we see as readers and as adults, of course, is that what's being idealized is it's it's their affluence. I mm-hmm. think that that they are in a different class than Winnie's parents, right? So oh, they said. Uh, they they set fancy candlesticks on the table at mm-hmm. every dinner, and they drink wine and let the kids sample the wine and like they're they're sort of cultured and cosmopolitan and they 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 moved to tokyo yeah that's true i i read them as just more like liberal you know oh sure yeah like when i i'm sure that goes hand in hand yeah so can i ask you too did you at any point think that maybe iggy was dead (laughs) 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 or like never existed because i was like she's writing a lot of unsent letters here (laughs) i was gonna turn out that also, no, I'm going to put forward a, my theory of, of Winnie and her psychological state later, okay. but it tracks in my mind. <laughs> so I think the problem is, Sam, you've never been like an 11-year-old girl because... What? Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's some part of me that gets Winnie's continual revisions to your best friend. Like, I well, remember... It's, yeah, it's great. I remember when my best friend was gone for like a summer over, you know, like she was gone to camp and like right before she left, we were like here's our friendship bracelets and we're going to write every day. And then I didn't, I wrote her one letter, I think, or like a postcard even. It was so lame ass. It was like, dear Krista, like I got a new dog. You know? Can I tell you a story? This is really dark. Oh, no. Actually, speaking of Iggy being dead, this is is really (laughs) bad. I know. So my mom knew this woman from church who her grandkids were staying with her and we didn't mm-hmm. know why, but my mom was like, it's really important to me that you guys hang out with the grandkids and like spend time, be friendly to them. Okay. And she's especially pushing my older sister to befriend the sister. Okay. The granddaughter. Mm-hmm. And they were here just in town for a little bit. And so we would take them to like the swim club with us. And oh. It was like, 
This sounds very not, Iggy's house. Oh yeah, right. Right. Um, <laughs> yes, we we took them maybe three times, I guess, and then they moved away, and we didn't see them. They were just mm. there, sort of for an extended stay. And then my mom was encouraging her to write to this granddaughter and the granddaughter had written to Sarah a couple times and they were funny like I saw the letters they were both like maybe 10 or 11 it was like hi Sarah I like cats do you like cats you know, things like that <laughs> yeah and my sister definitely never wrote back and my Aww. mom would always ask her she's like did you write a letter back and my mom and Sarah my sister would be like yeah I wrote the letter it's fine <laughs> Just clear the line, because as an 11-year-old, you have no means of mailing a letter out outside yeah. your parents. <laughs> and then my it came up in conversation that the reason they had stayed with the grandparents was because their parents had died. Oh, no. And when I, I saw my sister's face as she heard this, and her face was just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, I, yeah. <laughs> like oh, no. I ignored the letters of, a, of an, a Orphan. new orphan. <laughs> I hope they're doing well. I'm sure they've recovered and things are okay. I'm going to bring this up to my sister, though, when I see her. You'd be like, like, hey, Sarah, so remember this horrible thing. The one whose parents are dead. It's so bad. Oh, uh, anyway, yeah, so, so writing letters. And also, you talk about the structure and what the the letters are continually revised. And it's really just mm-hmm. about her own worldview being revised. Because it right. ends with her, the ultimate letter just reads, Dear Iggy, it turns out I don't know as much about the world as I thought I yeah, did. Which yeah. is nice. So it's Winnie growing up over the spate of a week, which is yeah, really. very quick. Did you um, like Winnie? Ah, uh, so I... Some of her language does not age well, and I actually texted you this. The, the like the term "yick" just drove me insane. <laughs> I couldn't stand it. So she like she off she often says, um, "Mrs. Landon is so nosy." Germs. Yick. Yeah, Germs Incorporated is nosy. Yick. Um, and I like that just doesn't age well. Also. Winnie's kind of gross. Um, so. When we talk about aging well, too, this is a book that is firmly a 70s story. Oh, yeah. First of all, it opens, the first sentence is, uh, a, it opens with a scene of littering. The first I noticed sentence, that. I she was... crushed the wrapper in her fist and flicked it over her shoulder. <laughs> and then mere pages later, she's eating an apple while she walks and, and just throws, throws it in the, the sewer grate. I know. No one reading this. I was like, just throw it on like a lawn where it would like degrade. Oh, I know. And there's except for Glenn. Glenn at the end because he has to, right? He packs up all the trash. He collects it all. Yeah, but I mean, otherwise, Winnie's just throwing trash about, and And there's a dog running around. Oh yeah, not Um, dogs run around, not on leashes. Right. It seems like a new rule that they have to be (laughs) leashed. And then she wears, um, oh, it's hilarious, cut-off jeans, something yellow, I forget the description, and a sailor hat. Oh, yeah, a yellow sweater or something, <laughs> yeah. and a sailor hat that she just, like, stuffs all of her hair into. So, when the Garber children first meet her, the middle child, her uh, Herbie, who's kind of like... The herpes? More, he's not called Herpes. <laughs> Herbie. Um... He's, he's more of the, he's the surly one, and he doesn't know if Winnie's a boy or a girl at first, right? He's very confused about <laughs> who Winnie actually is. Who is this crazy girl just kind of, like, running up to them, or she's riding on her bike and mm-hmm. insisting that they pay attention to her. <laughs> oh, yeah, she's a very, like, aggressively forward and social person. Oh, yeah. And I, repeatedly but, putting her foot in her mouth. Yeah, and I, I kind of love that about her, though, because there's, an, there's yeah. an honesty about it. Yeah, and so I think it's interesting, too, that this is a novel that's primarily about race, mm-hmm. but it's not a... Judy Bloom isn't writing this world in which there's a single problem, or a single, like, issue. I shouldn't say even yeah. problem, that there are other issues for young readers to latch on to. So mm-hmm. one is, like, sort of like a gender conformity thing, mm-hmm. right, where there's... A sort of just alluded to. It's always on the margins, but her own sort of like insecurity or struggle with like being feminine. Yeah, yeah, where she's very much a tomboy and it has to deal with like guilt from her, grief from her mom about that and comparing herself to other girls who are. That reminds me of this moment where, like, this felt very dated, right? Where she goes to the swim club, mm-hmm. which is kind of fancy and you have to like sign in and everything. 
And um, this boy from the neighborhood, whose name is Big, Big Red, Red. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Big Red, pushes her in, and she isn't wearing her swim cap yet. And there's a sign. And there's a sign saying, like, all women yeah. uh, must wear a swim cap. And I, like, have never heard of that before, but I guess that's so that they don't, like, shed in the pool. What is that <laughs> for? Why would you have Probably. It's just, like, this feminine propriety thing that she has to follow also like if you only have one sign posted at your swim club it should be like don't poop in the pool (laughs) (laughs) or don't die yeah (laughs) like hair caps like that's like way down the list yeah very low priority i mean (laughs) this swim club is selling hot dogs and you know like don't put a hot dog in the pool that would be or don't shit in the pool yeah (laughs) no poop or hot dogs in the pool that so, would be my role. <laughs> let's talk about how we end up at the pool scene because that's a really big scene in the novel. Yeah. So we find out that Mrs. Landon, Dorothy Landon, Germs Incorporated, as she's nicknamed, mm-hmm. is very unhappy about the Garbers moving into their community. And she's another lady in the neighborhood. Oh, and the lady. Like, of a, the neighborhood, yeah, right. essentially, yeah. Like, a, a utterly sort of, uh, it try to, tries to embody, like, feminine perfection, but, and she's really controlling and she's so... She's on all and, these committees yeah, and... But everything has to be just right and perfect and mm-hmm. she always looks like like nothing out of place, right? And how she dresses and composes herself. People. What's like, her daughter's name? Clarice. Clarice. Yeah. yeah who's just like this um, just mini-me version of her. Yeah, I thought of a really lame joke where I was like, and then she goes on to join the FBI. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but I... I went there, but I didn't go there, so mm. <laughs> I know it's bad. I liked it. Um, I, I thought of making a... I just couldn't think of a Silence of the Lambs no, joke, so I mean, you were a step ahead of me. Well, we've already talked about Leland's name, but I feel like not many people that I know are named Clarice. Yeah. So it's a singular name, mm-hmm. right? I guess Winnie, for that matter. I don't know any Winnies. Well, Winifred? Winifred, yeah, yeah. I know Winifred. Winifred strikes me as much more of like an English name than mm-hmm. an American one. Yeah. Mm. Seems proper. Yeah. But so we find out that Germs Incorporated, again, Dorothy Landon, mother of Clarice, is so opposed that she has going around the neighborhood getting people to sign a petition to request that the Garbers move out. And she mm-hmm. says that they want to get a lot of names to convince the Garbers that no one wants them here. And that's the peaceable way to get them out. And then if they don't comply, she's going to resort to nastier methods. Right. Which she does, actually. She puts, what, a sign up that says you are not welcome here on their lawn. Yeah, it's really nasty. Um, And another thing that I think this novel does really well is portray the the, uh, Garber children, whose names are Glenn, Herbie, and Tina's disparate reactions to Mm -hmm. this racism, right? So um, Winnie has to navigate understanding, you know, different valences of outrage, essentially, right? right? Um, well, I love to, Herbie is, is sort of brusque or rude to her, and she goes, oh, I've got his number. He's a girl hater. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, no. Winnie, he's responding to much different issues. Well, especially because <laughs> she asks where they're from, they say Detroit, and then she asks if her dad's been looting for them. <laughs> oh, yeah, can I actually read yeah, do it. This, this scene here? Um, or, it's great, though. It's very short. Um, so she asks where they're from. Um, and initially Winnie asks if this new black family is from Africa, which is, you know, very problematic. Um, also, uh, foreshadows that line in Mean Girls where, um... (laughs) Foreshadows. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where the, the dumb mean girl goes like... Uh, you're from Africa, but you're not black. <laughs> Have you seen this? Yeah. Okay, never mind. Um, <laughs> you're like I just so have not confused. seen them in a long time. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, anyways, we, we can also cut that. Um, okay, so she asks if they're from from Africa, and of course they are not. Um, and so Glenn says they're from Detroit. And he says, did you ever hear of Detroit? And Winner responds, so now you think I'm a dope. Of course I know about Detroit, and I know about the riots, too. And then, so that's her response to Glenn, and she's, and she's thinking, there, that ought to show them that she knew plenty. Yeah. Uh, say, were you guys in the riots? And Glenn goes on to say, like, we couldn't even leave the house. Like, this is, are you ridiculous? Um, and so she then asks, uh, say, 
When you had those riots, did your father, uh, did he take shoes? What are you talking about now? Glenn asked. Well, I saw it on TV, and I remember that everyone was taking shoes out of store windows. You know, just smash the window and grab the shoes. Then Glenn responds, is that how your father gets shoes for you? So that's just like one of those moments that I thought was so beautifully articulating the different kind of perspectives and Winnie's growing education in um, just overturning like these really stupid uh, sensationalized assumptions. Right? Yeah, because she says too that previous to meeting them, she didn't know any black people and her only exposure to like even an understanding of difference was this school project where she had to write an essay on what can you oh, do yeah. about race relations. <laughs> and she was like, not, I mean, like, what the fuck can I do? I yeah, <laughs> I live in a white suburban neighborhood. There's, you know, like nothing I can ostensibly do right now. And I think it's great when they, she is over at their house. They're playing in the treehouse, the treehouse that Iggy's parents had originally built for Iggy and Winnie. Mm -hmm. And that's when they see that Dorothy or Germs Inc. is putting a sign on their lawn. Right. And the sign says, it's awful. It says, go back where you belong. We don't want your kind around here. Ugh. And she is so upset by this. But it, there's, she says, we're not all like that. She heard a small voice say, we're not, we're not, we're not. She realized the voice was her own and that she was crying. She turned and fled, tears streaming down her face. Yeah. And I think it is really interesting to think about one's own sort of, not culpability, but, mm -hmm. well, what am I saying? That she is also thinking now about the ways in which, like, her assumptions that she's had about them that are slowly being revised throughout the novel, mm -hmm. that, that she is also sort of complicit in a lot of these yeah. sort of presumptions of, of, of racial difference. And, and, well, and it's a moment of... Uh, growing up too because that line is spoken not only to the Garber children but also to their father. Yeah, right. Right, so um, she speaks, or Winnie says early in the novel uh, no one kind of takes her seriously. Iggy's parents had. They had kind of asked her opinion about things um, but her parents still very much treat her like a child. Yeah. Uh, and this is, you know, we've read most of the novel at this point. This is very late in the novel uh, and this those lines that you said are spoken to like a wider audience, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, it is right. Winnie trying to, I guess, be an adult or kind of have more mature thoughts about race and also being very emotionally affected by, um, you know. <laughs> She's so emotionally affected. That's the end of a chapter. And the yeah. first sentence of the next chapter is Winnie opened her eyes and looked around. For a second, she was not sure where she was. I was like, did she black out? Was she, she was like, she was that disturbed. She was that impacted by it. So this is also too, she's also wrestling with the fact that um, when Mrs. Landon comes to her house to have her parents sign the petition, her dad refuses to, mm -hmm. and she's really happy, but her mom is upset that he didn't sign the petition. Yeah, and that's another interesting thing that, I don't know, so... When I was growing up, I always assumed that my parents had the same opinion about everything, you know? So I always thought, like, my parents are a couple, therefore, like, my mom's thoughts on God are my dad's thoughts on God, or my mom's thoughts on race are my dad's thoughts on race, you know? That yeah. sort of thing. And so it wasn't until much later, until I was, like, in high school, that I realized, like, oh, wait, they're different people. Yeah, right. <laughs> so they have different kind of outlooks, perspectives, etc., and so for Winnie to have this experience, what like I consider early, yeah. right? To realize that like, no, wait, um, there are kind of like two different um, outlooks going on here, but one might win over the other and that's the danger, yeah. right? The persuasive power of the like night whispering is what she calls yeah, her right, mom's the night campaign. The mommy is like <laughs> terrible in this novel too. Oh, I know. She's There's, a, I want to read this too. So this is when... Winnie is telling her mom, Mrs. Barringer. That always mm -hmm. made me laugh too. That they're rarely called mom and dad in the book. Oh, She's I always know. like Mr. Barringer said or Mrs. Barringer said. <laughs> but um, the mom says, "Just a minute, just one minute, please. I'm not through yet." Do I have to remind you, and she's talking to Winnie, that last year you started the Freedom for Turtles Club, <laughs> and as president you went around ringing all the doorbells on Grove Street telling people how wrong it was to keep little turtles cooped up inside a house. Well, do you remember, Winnie? And then she says, so she goes, the same thing. <laughs> That's my point. Is that still the same thing? You're jumping into something you know nothing about. 
And so to reduce, like, these two issues of, like, a child's love for turtles, misguided, to her, like, seeing real wrong, you know, going on and wanting to address injustice. And then she just says, you shouldn't do anything. It's none of our business. You have a crusader personality you need to keep in check. Mm -hmm. All Winnie hears is, I'm a crusader. Yeah. (laughs) And so she writes up a... She calls it a petition, but really it's a sort of survey uh-huh. trying to get people to ex- write out their thoughts on how they feel about uh, people of other races. Mm-hmm. Um, and this takes us to the swim club. Yes. So- I love her, the way she writes out this um, survey, too, where it's like um, thoughts about uh, black people. And it's like, like, don't like, don't, don't know, know yeah. and don't care. Yeah, right. Really like, <laughs> very simplistic as... One of the characters later points out, like, there's no way you can capture the range of feelings about race in this little checkmark box thing. But she's mimicking um, Mrs. Landon's petition, and in that way, she's, you know, satirizing, essentially, what Mrs. Landon is trying to do. But this was, I thought, a really, really interesting move on Judy Bloom's part, was that there's a way in which Winnie mirrors Mrs. Landon, and a way in which... Mrs. Barringer, that's Winnie's mom, mirrors Herbie. Oh. Where there's, like, there's, they happen to fall on sort of two sides of an issue, but it's mm-hmm. the same personality, right? They have the same sort of engine motivating them. Yeah. And I think that's a really cool move on her part to, to show how very similar people or similar-minded people mm-hmm. Can, are on both sides, right? Yeah. And that it's, it's more complicated than that, and there's weird ways in which, like, yeah, I should think of a better way to say this. But they're juxtaposed in yeah. kind of interesting, at least personality traits, right? That, right, that um, strong idealism can fuel people on both sides, or mm-hmm. strong apathy, or strong biases, right? Right. That both Herbie and Mrs. Barringer um, are suspicious mm-hmm. and sort of don't want to be involved in, you know, the lives of people of other races or right. things like that. Or, yeah. Well, Herbie's main fear, which is, you know, partly justified, is that... Um, Winnie just wants to be their friend so that she can then say to others or brag Mm -hmm. to others that she has black friends, essentially, right? Or that she has, um, helped them in certain ways. And that's, you know, really problematic for a whole host of reasons, right? Mm -hmm. This is like the 1970 version of, uh, white people telling everyone how they voted for Obama, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, okay, the only real big plot point we need to take from this pool scene is that Mrs. Landon sees Winnie's survey and is mm-hmm. pissed. Oh, yeah, she but is pissed. there's so much about this pool scene I want to talk about. <laughs> okay. So first, you brought up Big Red confronting her. So mm-hmm. Big Red is pissed at her because she lies to Big Red early in the novel and tells him that the Garbers are from Africa mm-hmm. because she knows that He'll be impressed by that and won't be as mean that way. And Big Red is just a like a 12-year-old neighborhood kid. Yeah. So, first of all, their run-in to each other is insane. Big so, Red and yeah. Winnie's? So, okay. Big Red approaches her while she's eating her hot dog and french fries. And what does he do? Uh, oh, he, he sits douses. Down. Yeah, he goes, don't mind if I do. And he grabs like a handful for fries and she's like, that's my lunch. <laughs> and then he douses everything in ketchup. Oh, it's disgusting. And then just, like, threatens her for having lied to him. (laughs) Right? So that's intense. However, I want to argue that Winnie has some real anger issues. (laughs) So this is how that chapter starts. When she goes in for the hot dog, she kicked open the door of the screened-in refreshment stand (laughs) and stepped inside. And then she heckles the two kids in front of her who are trying to decide what to get. And she starts, like, rushing them and tapping her foot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's like, okay, that's a bit much. And then we get to, I'm sorry, I'm using a Kindle, which is, like, not great for navigating. <laughs> it's okay. Um, she, after her conversation with Big Red, she looked up into Big Red's laughing face. And then we're going to go down. Winnie muttered under her breath, this is after he pushes her in the pool, and considered how good it would feel to chop off his big red head with a sharp <laughs> hatchet. Like in the oven I was like, this is insane. Glass. <laughs> and I, that's why I was like, Maybe Iggy is dead. This is her working through a lot of, like, feelings of mourning. (laughs) If Iggy was dead, then Big Red is an even bigger asshole because he's just, like, terrorizing. And then Um. the other thing I want to talk about in this scene is uh, Mr. Berger, who Mm -hmm. is, am I right in saying this? He's a straight-up child molester, right? 
No, well, he's a swim instructor and PE instructor. All right, I just got that he was a PE instructor, and mm-hmm. I was like, you are a public school gym teacher. Like, August and the summer generally are not your jurisdiction, no, so... He, no, he teaches swim classes. Okay, well, maybe I missed so that. He's he's supplementing <laughs> his, you know, poor income from the school system by teaching swim classes. But it is, you're right that it is weird that he's like, Icky, you know... Like, I don't know. You know I don't like to see you in that nose clip. Yeah, and there's this weird scene where, like, she watches him jump off a diving board (laughs) with a child. Yep. Holding a child, you know, and she's like, I remember. Yes, this is it. Okay. When he sat down on the edge of the lounge chair, she watched Mr. Burger jump off the diving board with a little boy. (laughs) (laughs) It does sound weird. It does sound strange. Okay. He used to to do that with her, too. And multiple times he's like, you know, I don't like to see you in that nose clip. <laughs> and I was just like, you know, I feel like all the signs are there. It's just that it's 1970 and no one's bothering to read them yet. No. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> I was like, Iggy or Winnie, you need to stay away from Mr. Burger. This like, is, keep your yeah, distance. This is creeper danger right here. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, the only thing that really results from the scene, though, is that Mrs. Landon's so pissed off that um, Winnie is carrying around this survey slash petition Mm -hmm. she goes to their house during dinner after her mom's just made cherry tarts which we hear so much about i know that's a surprisingly long discussion of how glorious these cherry Mm -hmm. tarts were and then right as they're about to eat them mrs landon rings the bell and then when he's like no we're about to eat cherry tarts (laughs) and then she comes in and was like you need to control your daughter and (laughs) mr um barringer is like not your fucking place it's our kid so amen right yeah. and he like i know and it really fist. is like this like maybe that's where she gets her rage issues from is her father because he mm. like bangs his fist breaks like some glass or something oh really yeah he breaks like a vase or something. oh that's right or an ashtray or something yeah um, i forget now and he you know like he's pissed because mrs landon germs incorporated mm-hmm. has barged into his house yeah told him how to raise his own child and how to believe about like about race, essentially. Right. And so, is encouraging them to move yes, while their, their yeah. uh, house value is still high. Right, right. And so he, like, boots her out, and then he's like, now let's have some cherry tarts. And then the mom's like, I don't know if she's crying, but she's pissed off. She's and then so she, emotionally disturbed by this that she yeah. can't eat the cherry tart. And then Winnie's like, I can't eat anymore. <laughs> and then, like, the next morning she wakes up and she's upset with Mrs. Landon for coming by. Partially because of her racism, <laughs> but more because now they didn't eat cherry tarts. <laughs> I was like, this is like the seventh reference to those cherry tarts. Well, I was worried about Winnie's health throughout the entire novel because she she keeps like refusing to eat, but then oh, eating yeah, horrible right. things. So she's always she like, does not eat much no, at Mom, all. I'm not going to eat. And then she runs away, goes to the park, and then will eat like you know a hamburger or something right. insane like that. So um, yeah, that's really true. <laughs> So then she stays committed to her cause and she goes to meet um, Glenn, who's the oldest of the the Garber kids her mm-hmm. age. And I I really think, like, her attempts to socialize are really, like, sweet. Like, I really enjoyed those. Yeah. And my favorite was this one where she asks, she had, in anger, she had punched Herbie because she was so angry. Mm-hmm. And then she goes by to say hi and she says hi to Glenn, asks how Herbie's doing. And then... Her, Glenn says, well, he puked after lunch. Um, and when he goes, yeah, and then trying to brighten things up, say, I threw up on a bus once, <laughs> spaghetti, all over the place. The people on the bus weren't very happy about that at all. <laughs> Winnie laughed nervously. She certainly hadn't planned to tell that story. <laughs> but haven't you ever done that before where, like, somebody tells a story or something, like, slightly embarrassing and your need to, like... Oh, yeah. Uh, just be socially appeasing or uh, pleasing. Um, you tell, like, an awful response story or something well, also, like that. also, sometimes I'll just jump into a story because I remember one part of it. And then as I'm telling it, I remember where it goes. And I'm like, oh, why oh, am no. I telling this story? Like the, the dead children. <laughs> or not dead children. The dead parents No, I had story. clear eyes when I made <laughs> that choice. where that was going. <laughs> I swear where my sister's face is like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and even then she was like, 
no, I, I wrote the letter. Just leave me alone. <laughs> she lives with this deep, dark guilt for years and yeah. years. Well, so, okay, the other thing I was going to bring up, when we talked about, I, I mentioned this at the beginning, that it kept seeming like some sort of catastrophe was going to happen. And I felt that mm-hmm. most at the end of this novel because she meets up with Glenn and Herbie and Tina and they go to the park again. Like, mm-hmm. all right, we knew there's a pack of kids at the park last time. Something's right. going to happen. And then on their way, they pass this house that's still being built. And they're like, let's go explore. I thought somebody explore. was going to get hurt. I know. And they go in and they're playing house. And I was like holding my breath the whole time. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out like, no, it's just like this sort of beautiful moment. Yeah. Uh, like, right. So them playing house is like idealizing or imagining the possibility of this like multiracial community or domestic space. And mm-hmm. then they go to the park and then they decide they're going to go on rowboats. And I was like, oh, no, someone's going to something's going to happen. <laughs> and then they just drown. boat around for a while and yeah. then they go home. And then we find out that uh, the Landons have decided to move. Uh, the Garbers refuse to move and everyone else in the community is uh, even if yeah. they're not okay with it, they're not giving them a hard time. Right. And the summer is over, and the, the school semester is about to start. So Right, so it leaves with them. She writes the letter to, to Iggy finally, saying, I don't know much at all. And then they get in the car to go pick up uh, Winnie's older brother from summer camp. Mm-hmm. And then we can presume that as time goes by, Winnie eventually ends up in prison. <laughs> She's a violent person. And a litterer. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, here's yeah, with what, many fines. Here's what Bloom says at the very end, you know, it's like an author's note to um, Iggy's house. She says, this book takes place during one week of summer. I'd like to believe that when summer ends, Winnie and the Garbers will get to know each other and become real friends, right? So not this superficial, right. like, Welcome to the neighborhood, you know, like here are all the sights to see, but uh, lasting kind of friendship that is more sustained now that Mrs. Landon is not creeping about. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. Yay. Our and first it is lovely... interesting, too. So she does in the afterwards, she reminds us that it's not only are these riots going on mm-hmm. in Detroit, but also in New York. But also this is only two years after Martin Luther King has been assassinated. Right. right? And it's it's yeah. easy to forget when you're in this like reading this 70s suburban set novel. It's primarily white. That's how much what what else is going on in American history? Just a couple years yeah. removed. It's so yeah, it's so easy to be to forget that. There are so many insulated worlds, right? And it's when you have change in that world that, like, somebody like Winnie can grow up and be much more better human overall, right? Than somebody like Clarice. Much more socially conscious. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Clarice, man. I hope she becomes Clarice Darling. (laughs) That's really the best possible scenario I can imagine for her, given that adolescence. So, uh, (laughs) you know, I'll just say, like, I I enjoyed reading the novel, and I'm I'm, I'm really curious to, to read more. Bloom, because from I, what I understand, this is sort of, she's just warming up in this one. Yeah, so. I am excited for this adventure. I think it's, I mean, like we said, when we've been emphasizing throughout, it's radically different from our, our first mm-hmm. Lynchian times, but it's, they're fun reads. They're interesting and exciting, and I can't wait to see what we do. Yeah. Now let's try out a segment that, uh, if this ah. is anything like last season, we will introduce today and then forget about by episode three. A new segment! Called, If This Were a Movie, Who Would Billy Zane Play? <laughs> he would play Mr. <laughs> Beringer. Oh, mm, no? I, I see him as a Mr. Burger type. <gasps> you see him as the creepy <laughs> swim instructor? Oh, no. <laughs> With the nose clips. Mm-hmm. Mm, that would be kind of ironic. I don't his... see Billy Zane, like... I don't see him willing to shed his sort of pseudo-British refinements to play a convincing hardware store employee. Oh, true. But you think he could be a PE slash swim instructor? I think he's played creepy very well in the past, so... (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever see Dead Calm, that movie with Nicole Kidman? No. She's married to, like, is it Sam Neill? And they're on a boat because their kids died and they're, like, mourning... And there then, are so many, like, dead children's and parents in this episode. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed that? I have. Even this as I was saying it, I was like, I've, brought, I've invited a lot of death into this conversation. <laughs> but uh, he plays this guy who is, like, stranded on a ship that broke down, and they think they're, like, helping him out. And it mm-hmm. turns out that he might be the reason that everyone on that ship <gasps> was stranded. Oh, and, and he murdered them all? You'll have to watch oh, and find out. Okay. I won't watch that. I've <laughs> <laughs> got too many things. <laughs> You're like, is there a demon in it? Then no. No. I only care about demon babies now. Mm-hmm. Um, or Gregory Peck. Or Gregory Peck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's delightful. <laughs> so, yeah. Next week, Are You There, Goddess Me, Margaret? Her other the 1970 one, novel. The like the most famous yeah, one. Yeah, this one she's so most remembered for. This is going to be our 
it's like we're doing Blue Velvet again. Um, it's Judy Bloom's Blue Velvet. That's a good one. That's that's what we'll title it. What if it turns out that has just as much sadomasochism in it? <laughs> oh, God. We have no idea. <laughs> we, re- we really don't. We know nothing about this book. <laughs> so, uh, as we wrap up this episode, Katie, what are you obsessed with this week? This week, I am obsessed with the video game Horizon Zero Dawn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think Which I has a ginger about- lead. A ginger Is this the first girl. ginger video game lead you've had? Uh, well... In any game that you can make your own character, okay, yeah. I always make mine be a demon with red hair. Okay. Um, and with a really inappropriate name. Um, so, but no, this one is, you know, a preset character you have to play. And her name is Aloy. She's redheaded and it's a badass. And it's the far future. And there are evil robot um, animal machine things. Yeah. And it's a real. I have not played it, but I've seen pictures of it and it has a cool aesthetic because it's futuristic but it also looks like prehistoric yes so it's like robot dinosaurs and it's very bucolic and hands down the best story the best narrative of a video game i've ever played oh really yeah um normally i kind of skip that stuff like whenever the joker's like batman you're really crazy i'm like i don't care joker shut the fuck up but this one has a very compelling narrative so it's actually a different experience for me so i'm obsessed with it so, Sam, what are you so obsessed Horizon with? So, Horizon Dawn? Horizon Zero Dawn. Horizon Zero Dawn. Yeah. I'm going to plug a book I just read last week that's one of the, maybe my favorite reads so far this year. It's a 1930s novel called by Rudolf Fischer called The Conjure Man Dies. The Conjure Man? The Conjure Man. Yeah, so do you know, like, Conjure Stories? Oh, like, okay, yeah, yes. Yeah, like, so a Conjure Man is, like, a, a sort of voodoo mystic or, like, uh, can commune with spirits and tell the future, things like that. Yeah. Um, so it's about a mystery that involves the supposed death of a conjure man in Harlem. So this is the first um, black detective novel, mm. and it's great. It was I I loved everything about it. Like a good detective novel, it is also it has a really good mystery and story and really interesting characters, but it's also an opportunity to just explore all the complicated ways in which such so many different people share. A community with one another, right, and sit uncomfortably, like across yeah. classes and across racial divides and economic ones. And uh, it's but there's great. also magic in it. There is. So I should and read so, this. Yes, and so yeah, it's there's it's also yeah a novel that's shows Fisher really trying to wrestle with like the legacy of black culture and the future of you know African Americans and and it's great. I really loved it, and I've been recommending it to everyone. It, Very cool. Yeah, you'll enjoy it. All right. So um, as we say goodbye, let's recall our beloved Billy, Billy Zane. Zane. We should start writing letters to Billy Zane. <laughs> oh, I will totally write letters to Billy mm-hmm. Zane. Um, Billy Zane, if you're out there, Rest ghostly or physically, <laughs> come to we, us. We miss you. and Yeah, we conjure you. <laughs> we conjure you. <laughs> right. See you next week. <laughs>